Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Our next guest has a music career spanning two decades. She reached new heights of stardom with songs like Murder on the Dance Floor and Groove Jet and should be national treasure status for keeping a smile on all our faces uh, with her kitchen discos during lockdown. These days, she also has a successful show on BBC Sounds and a podcast that's into its 10th season. And she's just released her seventh studio album called Hannah with songs that are inspired by a trip she took to Japan. Let's take a listen. Well, earlier I spoke to Sophie Ellis-Baxter and began by asking whether it's her most introspective uh, work yet. Yeah, I think you're right, actually. It is quite introspective. And I think I think it's because while I was writing this, it was also simultaneously when um, we were having the kitchen discos at home, which were like uh, Instagram discos we were putting on during the lockdowns. And through them, I was wearing full-blown sequins and singing covers of songs I liked and my old songs. So the album became the other side of the coin. It became a place where I didn't need to be so uh, extrovert. I could be a bit more um, reflective, I suppose, and wistful. But also I wanted the catharsis of going somewhere else. And I think it's not a coincidence that a lot of the songs are about being in space or being somewhere. A lot of it's based on sort of fantasy island idea of Japan and places like that I think places I couldn't go in real life there's a song on the album Until the Wheels Fall Off which literally brought tears to my eyes would you like to elaborate a little bit on, on, on what inspired it because I just thought it's a letter from your dad but you, you explain it because it's such a romantic thing yeah and I think what makes it more to me more poignant is that my stepdad John who wrote the letter he's uh, he was born and raised in Huddersfield and he's not someone that's necessarily particularly romantic he wasn't a particularly demonstrably romantic person but then this letter that he directed us to so he when he died like literally the day he died he'd left an instruction to go and pick up this letter from the solicitor so we all read it together the whole family and it basically outlined both his funeral speech but the, the, the epicenter of his life and his happiness seemed to be the love story between him and my mum and they were very happily married and they really kept having adventures and doing new things and there was so much about what he said in this letter and particularly this one paragraph about how he and my mum had well, even after his uh, cancer diagnosis they'd still 
you know, burnt the best candles, drank the fine wines, gone and tra- gone and travelled, done new things together. And I thought that's just such a way to live. That is literally what we've got here. We can't, you can't wait for the, everything to be the right moment. You know, the scene is set. You've just got to jump in and get the most out of where you find yourself in the here and now. So that song is, yeah, a tribute to him. And sonically, I wanted to get it sounding a little bit like the music you listen to as well. And I think I think he would have liked it. I like to think he would have liked it. I can't imagine how he wouldn't have. And it has, in a way, uh, answered in part, I suppose, my next question, which is just, I, you know, I don't know about you, but when I was a teenager, I used to write poems copiously, you know, every time my heart was broken, you know. At that age, it's really... Your emotions are so skin deep that it's really easy to tap into them, uh, really easy to, I think, take inspiration from them to write poems, songs, whatever it is that you want to, uh, how you want to express yourself. Does it get harder to access those those sort of profoundly um, compelling emotions in middle age? Because one of the nice things about uh, being middle aged to me is that your emotions level out in a way, and so life becomes easier to deal with. But that's not very good for a songwriter, is it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose there's lots of things at play there. One thing is, I think when I am making music. There's something in me that goes back to being about 17. And I've always marveled at music's ability to make you time travel. I think it's extraordinary. And sometimes it's like all the dots kind of join up and I can feel the link of that kernel of me then. But I think also to help me feel inspired, I quite like changing the rules and changing the framework. So when... I, this is the third album. Hannah is the third album I've written with a singer-songwriter called Ed Harcourt. And for us, we've been writing albums that we always have a, a landscape. So we did one that was Eastern European in feel, one that was Latin American. This has taken us to Japan. Uh, that's really good because it gives you a sort of context. But also I think because these albums that I've done with Ed, aren't, they aren't based in doing um, four on the floor dance music. It liberated me to write songs about other things that I couldn't do when I'm writing those kind of songs because dance music's very heady. It needs to be an urgent emotion. Love, lust, heartbreak, euphoria, whatever it may be, it works really well because it's all so heady. But when you do songs that are in a different style, you can be a bit more, you can tell a story, you could make up some exotic little scene that you can picture. And I've done that, I've made characters. And I think for me that's been a way to... Sort of challenge my brain a little bit, I guess. And I think I've still got further to go. I think there are topics that would be really nice to explore in music that don't necessarily always get talked about. Um, I, it's hard to articulate what I mean there, but I suppose I want to reflect where I'm at in life. So I don't want to write an album in my 40s, 50s that is written for, you know, that I wouldn't listen to at home. I want to actually keep myself company as I get older too. <laughs> and we'd like you to keep us company as we get older as well. So that would be excellent if you could. Um, I'm, I'm wondering about this year you're performing at, at Glastonbury. I think on Sunday you're opening the, the Pyramid Stage on Sunday. Um, is that going to be more kitchen disco, age appropriate? Is it going to be more mystical? Yeah. Are we going to go on a little travelogue with you? And are you excited about going back? Because I think you haven't been back since the since the pandemic. That's right. I haven't been back, and also I've never played the pyramid before. I've um, this will be my fourth Glastonbury. I played it first in the late '90s when I was a teenager, and then I sort of skipped a whole decade 
went back a couple of times uh, with the last couple of albums. But yes, I'm very excited to go on the pyramid stage. That's a really big deal. And I think my job is just to create a good party. I think I'm going to be scooping up some possibly hungover people from the Saturday night, <laughs> getting them ship shape for a really good Sunday. That is my role. That's how I see it. <laughs> well, I'm very much looking uh, forward to being there and witnessing you getting us uh, ship shape for Elton John in the evening. I mean, that's quite a yeah, that's quite a tall order, isn't it? Um, but you mentioned there, uh, you know, having played there first in the in the late '90s, and I thought we could look back a little bit on 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 your early career because your band's first album was super super successful, but the demos for for your second album weren't picked up and. I wondered how that knockback affected you then. I mean, you were sort of, I think, about 20 years old and suddenly you were you were like a has-been or, you know, must have felt for a moment like, oh, that's it, I've done it, and now now what? You know, um, how much now, with the benefit of hindsight, does that seem like probably quite a good learning curve, even if it felt terrible at the time? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It, it's kind of the foundation of everything that's followed on, really, because... So I was 16 when I started singing this band called The Audience. I didn't know much about the music industry at all. I was just a very big fan of music. We kind of got twirled around, really. By the time I was 18, we had uh, offers from six major labels. We signed one. I left school after my A-levels, went off on tour. It was all very exciting, cover of Melody Maker. Then the album came out and actually didn't perform as well as the label had hoped. So we sort of limped on for another year trying to make a second album. It just wasn't working. By the time I was 20, we'd been dropped, the band had broken up. And I really did think, I am high and dry and my friends are still finishing their, they'd all gone to uni and I just thought, wow, I've already discovered this, really. But I do think if you've had the experience of sort of getting what you want handed you on a plate and then it all going, it does really sober you up for any opportunities that come afterwards and nurturing them but also just not having that fear of it of a failure dangled in your periphery as a reason to actually make decisions it's like well I've been there before I know that feeling I don't like it but at least I'm not it's not like a complete unknown so I think it kind of clarifies things for me a little bit and also makes me really appreciate where I'm at now I still can't quite believe I got lucky enough really to keep going because it's quite extraordinary, I think. I was very, very... I don't know what would have happened without Groovejet. Well, I, I, kind of say I was going to ask you about Groovejet because, of course, that's a track that everyone knows. Huge, uh, uh, big hit. But you almost turned it down, didn't you? Yeah, I was... <laughs> I was quite insulted when I was asked to sing on that song at first because I was such an indie kid. And this um, Groovejet came from, you know, Ibiza, house music. I, I didn't know anything about that world. And this is, you know, the late 90s early noughties things were still very genre specific nowadays everything cross pollinates we're very used to that um but this then it was very much a sort of stay in your lane kind of a feeling but actually that's kind of what also enticed me towards doing the project because there was something in the song i liked anyway and i thought also what an amazing breath of fresh air this is away from that side of the music press they won't even know i've done it i'll just have had another experience and it kind of took me off on this incredible little journey really and I just, yeah it changed everything for me but mainly my way of thinking about what I could do and what worked for me I thought actually if it feels right for me then it's fine you don't need to overanalyze it's not you don't need to kind of stay in your box you're allowed to you're allowed to step outside of it sometimes 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And that carried on, really, didn't it? Because then in 2001, you, you brought out your first solo album, uh, led by that hit that everyone knows, Murder on the Dance Floor, I think heard in uh, every party hosted by millennials. I mean, just, you know, a complete transformational hit in a way. But but now it feels like you've, you've, you've turned a different corner again. Is that something that... I mean, I think I wonder if that early setback is is partly what gives you the confidence to to keep doing that because I do think there's there's a way in which you know artists in general get pigeonholed, but I think it's particularly women in, in a way. Yes, and I, I mean, I have to say, starting out as a teenager in the sort of tail end of Britpop, that indie scene, the indie press was a bit of a baptism of fire. Actually, I found it quite terrifying. I felt on the inside very, very square and I had to keep pretending I was keeping up. But, you know, things now, I suppose, I feel like I get a lot of confidence actually from who I've surrounded myself with. And that is the glorious thing that happens when you've been doing what you do for a long time is that you've built up all these relationships with people you really trust around you. Um, you know, I just made a music video for the latest single from Hannah uh, with the same director who did Murder on Dance Floor and Take Me Home With Me back in the day and same hair and makeup lady Lisa I still work with the same artwork people um, my husband Richard is really supportive of what I get up to and has always encouraged me so I think that's really that's really given me a lot more confidence because I don't feel like I'm doing it just on my own there's kind of a little bank of us all kind of working together and that's that's really I think that's like an untold wonderful aspect of doing what you do like building up all those relationships and getting that experience together especially well it's great you don't uh, feel like uh, you're working your career on your own but your podcast uh, spinning plates uh, would seem to suggest that like an awful lot of mothers out there uh, one can feel slightly overwhelmed by the sort of other job uh, that you have to do at the same time as, as as pursuing your career. And I was interested, you said earlier, you know, that you're, you you like to be very selfish about when you're doing your music and, and, and you know, being in the studio. It's, it, it's even an interesting choice of words because there are very few men I would talk to, artists, who would describe it as selfish. They'd say, you know, yeah, we went into the studio yeah. and we went into a very intense phase, you know, read absent from home <laughs> most of the time, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, so... 
what was it that inspired spinning plates and made you want to look into um, that issue more? Well, I think it's a, a, a few different things, actually. Um, so I speak to working women who also happen to be mothers. Firstly, I think I'm always quite interested in people's jobs, what made them do what they do. I like hearing about people who are passionate about something extraordinary or interesting. But also, I think, for me, I had Sonny, my eldest, he's 19 now, so I had him when I was 25, and it just, it just knocked me for six a bit in terms of how I felt about myself, how I had to find my way back to what kind of musician I wanted to be, how I felt performing on stage, and I don't know if it's an experience lots of people have, but it just took me a really long time to recalibrate, and I think even relatively recently, I was still... I like to be completely available to my kids at any time, of course. So sometimes that's meant that I've diminished my work or I've tried to reduce, you know, the way that I feel about it because I don't want them to feel, oh, your work takes you away. And then I realized I was actually sort of doing them all a disservice, really, because there's nothing wrong with loving what you do and actually respecting that I do need to go away and I do need to do my work and I care about it. So I suppose the conversations I've been having, they've partly actually helped me with that. But also, there's just so many interesting stories out there. Like, I've had some of the best conversations I've ever had by doing the podcast. And podcasts are such a passion project. You know, you've got to, I book all my own guests and you've got to find the time, but I absolutely adore it. You, you mentioned, Richard, <laughs> um, your husband who's in the, the feeling and, um, you know, having two artists in one family can be a positive thing because you understand uh, a lot about each other's you know, needs and jobs. Uh, but I wondered how it plays out on a male-female uh, level because one of the things, obviously, about spinning plates that you discover a lot of the time is is that working women do tend to take the burden of, of domestic um, responsibility as well. You know, I mean, there are statistics to prove it. I'm not saying anything controversial. So how does that work when it's two artists in the same household? Yeah, and you're absolutely right. Yeah, I totally agree with you that that is the dynamic. And I actually uh, I wrote uh, like an autobiography a couple of years ago and I actually put in it that I was quite surprised by sometimes how traditional our dynamic is, even though I'm quite a modern thinker. It's quite easy to slip into those roles, isn't it? You have to kind of almost take yourself out of it. I mean, Richard is, you know, he's a feminist. I'm raising five feminists with my boys for sure. But I think sometimes it's hard to see the join between doing things because um, from a young age, you know, women are encouraged to take on the nurturing roles and do run the house and all those things. Also the fact that I'm a bit of a people pleaser, so I quite like getting on with stuff and I'm quite bad at asking for help sometimes, but also a little bit of a control freak as well. So I kind of quite like that feeling of being across it all. So sometimes I feel like I'm a bit of my own worst enemy with it. But it's good to keep having the conversation because it keeps you trying to think in a slightly fresher way. And um, you're right, I, most of them I've spoken to now, over 100 women, and the amount of women where their husband has been the one or their partner's been the one that stayed at home while they worked is... I mean, I'd say it's under 5%. I was talking to Anne Bowden yesterday, who uh, is this amazing um, woman in her mid-50s who decided to start a bank. But she said something that's really resonated with me, which was that, um, you know, when it comes to women in the workplace, that it's mm. not women that have to change, it's the workplace that has to change. And I, I, I sort of feel that the same 
could be said about you know the domestic world absolutely and you know keeping a bit of a i, I interviewed um hella thorning schmidt i love day. her yeah yeah great it's so dynamic you're like if you start a club i'm joining um but she said when she was um prime minister that she changed the working hours so that people went home they work at a civilized time because the people were so driven to be like oh, i'm going to stay in the office till 10 p.m and that was almost like a you know a badge of honor he's like actually people have got things they need to go home to they might need to go and visit their elderly relatives they might have pets they might just want to go for you know do a hobby it doesn't have to even just be family but she just changed the shape of it so that people could actually have a life outside of work and all these things will help men and women be able to feel that they're involved and engaged and give them a feel that they've got you know purpose with it all so yeah it's an ongoing conversation i wondered you said uh, a few minutes ago you know that you raised married to a feminist and raising five feminists but what are, what kind of challenge is that i mean first of all i've got two kids i've got a, a boy and a girl and and my daughter has just been away for nearly three months in the far east and i was so relieved to have her back because i realized how much i relied on that kind of um the fellowship, which is an ironic term, or the sisterhood of having uh, a, another woman in the house, you know, that, 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 that there is something quite special about that connection. And I wondered how lonely it feels <laughs> being the only woman in the house, but also how you manage to raise feminists when, you know, your boys are, are living in a society where, you know, the proliferation of pornography, you know, horrible objectification of women, you know, toxic masculinity is a key word. You know, how do you negate all of that? Well, firstly, I don't get lonely, so that's good. Um, I think, you know, kids, especially if they're part of a big family, are very clever at kind of covering the spectrum, really. And actually, my eldest boy, um, Sonny, he... I think he signed my last birthday card. Lots of love from your therapist. <laughs> I go and see him all the time and just sit in his room on the floor and just sort of go through all the stuff that's been going on. And he helps me kind of, yeah, he's always been a very good, empathetic ear. So actually, I'm really close to him. And he is talking about when he leaves home. And I'm like, oh, what do I do without my cat? I don't know how I'll do without that. But um, I think, uh, how do I negate it all? Golly, I mean, I'm just trying my best, really. I mean, in terms of, they've got lots of very amazing, strong women in their lives. They're not short of that. Um, we have just open conversations about lots of stuff, really. I think it's um, it's always been a wild world, you know. And I suppose I'm just hoping to raise kind, interesting people who prioritise um, making themselves feel good but also people around them as well and I sort of feel that hopefully the rest will fall in but I I don't know I think it's a long game I mean I feel like I'm not really going to know how well I've done at parenting until they're all like grown up I can't let you go without you telling me what is the ultimate at kitchen disco track oh well for me the perfect song always leaves you feeling glorious at the end of it and I think the one that never fails is Thelma Houston's Don't Leave Me This Way. It starts off all slow and seductive and by the end it's like everything's kicking off and I love it. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business. Removing friction and frustration for your employees. Supercharging productivity for your developers. 
providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier. All built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more. 